So we are in the middle of a series called Ordering Your Life. Um, It's kind of a topical series of lots of different ways that we order our lives uh, as Christians. And so in my view, the idea behind this series is that Christians are people who say, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord of all things, which includes he is Lord over my life. And so if that is true, God is not just the authority or Lord over the spiritual things of your life, what you do on Sunday morning, the prayers you pray during the week, the community group or Bible study that you go to during the week. He's actually Lord of everything, that he's Lord of your money, your marriage, your friendships, your dating relationships, your gifts, your media choices, the words you say, and even your time. He is Lord over all of those things, not over just the spiritual realm. And so this morning, I want us to ask the question, What would it look like if Jesus was Lord of my time? What would my life look like if Jesus was Lord of my my time? What would life look like if I ordered my time not based on my leadership, my direction, and my goals, and my vision, but over Jesus's? And I want to ask that question because I think that in Midlothian, in Midlotopia, we have a time problem. Um, we're hurried, and we're busy, and for a lot of us, that's just evident on the outside. We're rushing around constantly. Constantly, Some of us work 60, 70 plus hour weeks constantly with no end in sight. Some of us have kids playing multiple sto- sports that dominate our evenings and our weekends for a year or half a year. We have no free time because this has dominated our lives. Some of us, even when we're off and we're with family, are texting and calling and emailing, squeezing in work around the edges. Some of us, let's be honest, church can be part of this. Some of us have too many church commitments. You're at three, four, five different church things throughout the week. You're volunteering on everything. You have meetings and Bible studies and community groups. You're doing too much. Some of you are too busy in that way. And so we stuff every night of the week, every weekend, with something to do, uh, some project to finish, someone to see, an improvement on our house to be made. And the little bit of free time that we do have, if we're being honest, it's not really restful. It's just numbing ourselves, putting ourselves in front of the TV, having a drink, and just zoning out. And for those of us who are hearing that thinking, yeah, that's not really me. I'm not really outwardly busy. I would also like to suggest that even if your life isn't hectic and hurried and busy all around you, that many of us, if not most of us, have a hurriedness at our heart level. That we're anxious and worried and hurried and busy at our heart. Um, And many of us are anxious about what would happen if we stopped working for a moment, if we said no to something. That if we did that, our hearts would wonder, have I, would would I have enough? Would I have enough if I stopped? Would I be taken care of? Would I be worth as much as I think I'm worth if I stopped, if I slowed down? And this hurriedness of the heart is not just a nuisance, it's not just an inconvenience, it's a sin. There is such a thing as being sinfully busy. When productivity and effectiveness and achievement have um, your total allegiance, it's not just some part of your life, it's an idol. And idols that are not Jesus Christ are pagan worship. And so we need to talk about this. And the Bible has an antidote to busyness and hurriedness of the heart, and it's called the Sabbath. So we're going to talk about the Sabbath Um, that we need the Sabbath, and we're going to talk about it in three ways. We're going to talk about Sabbath time, Sabbath cost, and Sabbath person. So Sabbath time, cost, and person. Let me pray real quick for the teaching of the word. Lord, would you bless the teaching of of your word? These are your words. And so God, anything that I say that is not true, that is not from you, 
uh, would it quickly be forgotten? Um, but God, if it is from you, from you, would it strike us to our very heart? So we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So the English word Sabbath is um, actually a transliteration of a Hebrew word, um, or the word Shabbat. Now Shabbat is a, a verb, and it means simply stop, cease, rest. It can mean all of those things, but what it means is to halt, to stop in your tracks. And there's two major places, the verb pops up all over the Old Testament. There's two major places, though, that it pops up, and I want to take us to both of those. And the first place is in Genesis, right near the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 2, 1 to 3. So let's put those on the screen and read those together. Uh, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. So Sabbath is brought up right at the beginning of the Bible immediately. It's wired into the fabric of how our world was created. And a question we should ask, this is one of those verses you hear a lot because you read the beginning of the Bible a lot. And there's something that happens when you read stories in the Bible a lot called the lullaby effect. When you read something weird, you've read it so many times, it doesn't sound weird to you anymore. And you kind of need someone who's never read the Bible to say, hey, that's weird. And you go, yeah, that is a little weird. And this is one of those things. And the question we should ask is, why does God rest? Why does he stop? Is God tired? Is he winded? Does he need a break? Is this just trying to tell us God, even God needs a vacation day sometimes? Um, but the Bible doesn't men- mention anything about God's rest levels, his energy levels, that he needs rest. It just says that the day is to be holy. And you notice this in the first five days when God finishes working, he says it's good. And then on the sixth day when he makes man, he says it's very good. And on the seventh day, he says it's holy. And that that day, holy just means set apart. And this is something we need to realize right away is the Sabbath is not a day off. The day, the Sabbath day is not a vacation day. A day off is a practicality. A day off is something that your doctor or your spouse or your friends might say, hey, you're working pretty hard. You should probably take a day off. It would be good for you. You say, yeah, I should. And you take a day off. That's not what's being described here because it's not talking about God's uh, energy levels. It's talking about his, his holiness. And so we know this about days off. Um, if you think back to when the Industrial Revolution happened, people were working crazy hours. You know, peop- the way people worked and, and um, their goals in working were radically changed. So people were working 12, 16-hour days and getting maybe a day off, um, sometimes not at all. And eventually that just became unsustainable. It's like people cannot work like that. It doesn't work. And people started getting more times off. But companies were pretty pleased because what you found out is actually people get more done if you give them a reasonable amount of work hours and a decent time off. They actually get more done than they ever did in seven days. And so as if you're a company, you're like, this is great. Yeah, let's get time off. It helps people work. Um, in a Harvard Business Review article from a few years ago, actually noted a similar thing about vacation days. Is you, you would think that the people who get ahead in life are the people who don't take vacation. Well, actually, it says, no, actually, the people who take all their vacation are the ones who really get ahead and really do the best. And it actually puts it this way. If you plan ahead, create social connections on the trip, go far from your work and feel safe, 94% of vacations have a good ROI or return on investment in terms of your energy and outlook upon returning to work. Just make sure you plan the trip at least a month in advance as one of the key predictors of vacation ROI is the month, a month in advance as, uh, blah, blah, is the amount of stress caused by not planning ahead. 
So, so literally, if you want a good return on investment for your vacation time, if you want to get out the, bet, the most that you can out of your vacation time, make sure to do it this way. And it's fine that days off help us work. It's a good thing. We should know it. It's true. But you need to realize that this is a very utilitarian outlook on human life. It's basically, it's a very industrialized way of looking at people. It actually assumes that people's primary goal in life is work. Your primary thing is to be effective, to produce. That's your main goal in life. And rest and time off are simply in service to work. It's not really restful. It's just in service to your work. If I actually want to work best, I should take time off. It's good for my body so I can get more done. So the Sabbath is not just vacation time or time off. In Genesis 2, Sabbath is holy time. And so the Sabbath for me is where my weekly concerns are set aside and I simply enjoy God and enjoy his creation. That's the Sabbath. So the second major place where the Sabbath time is outlined is in Exodus 20. If you hear Exodus 20, you should immediately think, Ten Commandments. And so this is what it says in Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And so this commandment, it's actually tied with don't Worship an idol for the longest commandment out of the Ten Commandments. It's, it's one of the two longest commandments um, in this passage. And so while this passage is in some ways just restating what Genesis said, that, hey, look, God worked for six days and took a day off, so that's the rhythm of life you need to keep it. This is different because it's a command. It's saying you must keep the Sabbath. This isn't just a good idea. You have to do it. Everyone in your house. And breaking this commandment is so serious that it's mentioned in the same breath as adultery and murder and envy. I had a pastor say, to, say once that if I got up here and I said, and I confessed to any one of the nine, nine of the Ten Commandments, if I got up here and said, I've committed adultery, I've envied, I've stolen, you know, all of this stuff, if I got up here and say, said that, hopefully what you would do is pull me aside and say, Jake, you just confessed sin. Repent. Believe the good news. But if I got up here and said, you know what, I haven't had a day off in a month. I've been working like crazy. The ministry stuff has just been coming up. I've been working on this sermon. Um, most of you would well, okay. At most you might say, oh, that's really hard. You know, these, these seasons happen in life. Things get busy. Uh, you know, you should really try to take a day off for yourself. It'd be good for you. You would never have that reaction if I got up here and committed adultery. Oh, that's really hard. You should probably try to spend some time with your wife. I think that would be really good for y'all's marriage. You would never have that reaction with any of the other Ten Commandments. And praise God that you wouldn't. So this passage is commanding us to follow God's example and showing us what it means to be a full, true human. The Ten Commandments, if you could follow them perfectly, you would be the most beautiful person in the world. Everyone would want to be your friend because you would never envy, you would never hurt anybody. It would be wonderful. And so this is saying this is part of what it means to be a real human, is to follow the Sabbath. So the Sabbath is, Sabbath time is a holy day, a day set apart for God, a a day set apart for non-work. It's a stop day. It's a cease day. It's made for non-work. And it's set aside for praising and enjoying God. And two, it's a part of the rhythm of life. It's part of what it means to be human. And so to ignore the Sabbath, actually, is 
to ignore your purpose in life and to ignore your humanity or to minimize it. So, if I've done a convincing job of saying to you that this is important in the Bible, some of you are sitting there being like, okay, well, if I could get rid of that thing on Friday nights and then every other Saturday we have that thing in the mornings, maybe we could get this 24 hours. You're already doing the calculus. Like, how, how can I squeeze in my 24 Sabbath, my 24-hour Sabbath so I can meet the command? Um, and if you're doing that, if that's you, stop, because the sermon's not over. Because actually the Sabbath goes way beyond just one day. The Bible goes way beyond just saying you should keep one day separate. Um, for me. Because in Leviticus 25, it expands on the Sabbath. Um, And it talks about what is called a Sabbath year. And here's how the Sabbath year worked. For six years, the Jews were said, you will work the land. Work the land and keep it and prune it and, you know, reap the, the crops. But on the seventh day, on the seventh year, we're talking years here, for a whole year, you let the land rest. You don't sow, you don't prune, you don't reap. You eat what you need and you leave it. You let it go wild for a whole year. It was a Sabbath year. Um, And even the land got rest. That's pretty difficult. It'd be hard to imagine us taking a year off. But here's the other thing. Um, Leviticus goes on in Leviticus 25 and verses 8 to to 14, actually. Let's read that. Um, If you can pull that up. Yep. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. So seven times seven, this is an ultra-Sabbath. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you, when each of you shall return to his property, and each of you shall return to his clan." That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. It, uh, in it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. In this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale for your neighbor or buy from, uh, buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. So this is every 49 years... You get an ultra-Sabbath called the year of Jubilee. And not only does the land rest for a whole year like in the Sabbath year, but on this year, actually, your land goes back to the family and the ancestry that God originally gave it for. And whatever land you're on, if you're not on your original land, that goes to somebody else. You go back to the way God set up the land. And so the, the thing about this is that we actually don't have any evidence that the Jews ever did this that they ever actually followed the year of Jubilee. And if we think about that and think about our own hearts for a second, it's not surprising. And I'll, let me illustrate that. Every time I go to a wedding um, these days, I, f- I have think to myself, I have got to figure out how to buy a piece of land with a lot of grass with an okay view and build a rustic barn, and I will just rake in cash all year round. Like, seriously, the wedding venues, you're like, it's just a barn and it just has a view, but people will pay 10 grand to just have it for the day. I'm like, I need to figure out how to do this. Now, imagine I did that and I actually built a barn like this on the land and my family was making money hand over fist. And um, then the year of Jubilee rolls around. Now this land that I bought, it's not my ancestors. So I have to go back to the land that I grew up from or that my family used to have, and I have to leave my land to whoever it belongs to. If you're like me, you're like, no way 
Are you kidding me? That is not fair. How could that possibly be fair? And that's probably what the Jews did, which is probably why this was never practiced. I mean, if that happened in America, everyone would be rushing to the courts to be like, no way you're taking my land. And that's probably what happened for the Jews as well. It's probably why it was never practiced. And if it was practiced, it's probably why it wasn't widespread, because it's too hard. And here's my point. You and I can't stomach the cost of the Sabbath. It's too high a cost for us. The Sabbath is a high cost. One day a week to just not work, that's a big ask. This is, this is probably why the Jews were actually never really able to keep just the Sabbath day either. We're actually told in like Isaiah 58 that one of the reasons that the Jews were probably exiled from the land is that they couldn't keep the Sabbath day. God says, if you'll return to the Sabbath and stop using it for yourself, then you can come back. But the Jews couldn't even keep the day, much less the year, much less the jubilee. And if we're honest with ourselves, we couldn't either. The cause of the Sabbath is too high. And so our hearts are so deeply broken, so deeply twisted, that we cannot honestly, purely, or truly set aside a day of our time for the God of the universe. We're so selfish and self-seeking, we cannot stomach the idea of really, truly setting our work to the side for a day. Because we're too certain we're positive that our lives will work best, my life will function best if I have control over every single second of it. If I can control every little bit of time, if I can get it just right, if I can line everything up just right, my life will be so smooth. We can't stomach the idea of a God coming in and saying, actually, one day you're going to waste. You're going to waste the time because it's holy to me. But luckily, this is not the end of the sermon either because we still need to talk about the Sabbath person. So I want to go to Matthew chapter 12. Jesus doesn't talk about the Sabbath much. Really, he just talks about it in this passage here. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read uh, in the law how uh, how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so what's he saying? He's jumping around, he's talking about the temple, he's talking about the Sabbath. He's saying the, the, the Sabbath, actually, you know, why is it that there are these stories in the Bible of someone profaning the temple and profaning the Sabbath and it's okay? Because it was never about the temple. It was never just about the Sabbath. They were always pointing towards something. They were always directing your gaze towards something. They were always pointing you to the real thing, the real rest, the real temple that was coming. It was always a signpost, and it was always pointing to me. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Sabbath. I'm the real thing. It was always pointing to me. And uh, to Americanize an illustration from N.T. Wright, why would you, if you're standing, why would you put a, a sign that says this way to New York City if you're standing in the middle of Times Square? Why would you have a sign that says this way to New York City? We're here. He's saying that's what's happening. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the real Sabbath. Why would you need the Sabbath when I'm here? 
But there's more than this. When Jesus is hanging on the cross in the book of John, chapter 19, it says this. We're getting there. Okay. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. Jesus is killed. This is a little technical, but it's important. Jesus is killed on the second to last day of the week. That's when he's hanging on the cross and he says it's finished. And then the very next passage after this, there's a scramble because the next day is the Sabbath. They've got to get him in the tomb because you're not allowed to bury people on the Sabbath. They don't want him hanging up there all day. So Jesus is killed on the second to last day of the week. His work is finished. He says it's finished. He's put in the tomb and he rests on the Sabbath. And the next day, the first day of the week, he's resurrected. And the new creation begins. And if you have a mind for rhythm and repetition, you've, you've seen what just happened. Because when God makes the world in Genesis 1 and 2, what he does is he does his work in six days and he finishes. And then he rests. And then the creation is done. And Jesus finishes his work on the cross, rests on the Sabbath, and the new creation begins. It's the same. He's doing, Jesus is doing what God was doing when he created the world. And so we assume, we have this assumption that if I work, if I work hard, if I do well, if I keep the Sabbath, if I do all the things I'm supposed to, I will be transformed and then God will give me rest. I work hard, I'm transformed and God gives me rest. I'll either get my rest in heaven or, you know, near the end of my life, he'll, he'll give me rest because I worked hard and I was transformed. But that's the opposite of the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus worked and if you rest in that, he will transform you. It's not work, transform, rest. It's God's work, Jesus' work, resting in it and then transformation. We actually cannot become a new creation. We cannot be um, transformed into Jesus' image unless we learn to rest. You cannot jump from work to new creation. You cannot jump from his work to transformation. There must be rest. Christ cannot transform you unless you are resting in him. He says, I am the Sabbath. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. So trust in my work. My work is finished. And if you will rest in me, rest in my Sabbath, then I will transform you. And until we start to see rest as a state in which we experience God's grace, not that it's just a waste of time or not something that's useful to us, we're always going to see, unless we're able to do that, see that rest is where we experience grace. We'll always see the Sabbath as an unnecessary rule. It's impossible to keep in the first place or another command that we can do to earn our merit badges, to work to transform ourselves. We're always going to see it as one of the two. The only way to really rest is to say, I'll never be able to rest in my work. I'll never have done enough to really feel secure. There's never going to be that moment where I think, ah, it is finished for me. I'm done. I've transformed. Now I can rest. We need to admit that. I'll never have done enough to be satisfied. I'll never have worked hard enough to rest easy at night. I need to rest in the work that Jesus did for me. I can't rest in my work. It's not enough. It'll never be enough. I'll always need to do more. I'll always have a hurried heart that needs to do more to justify itself. I need to rest in the work that Jesus did for me. His death was enough work for me, and I can trust that. And if you trust that, you will rest. And if you rest, God will make you a new creation. He'll make you something you never could have dreamed of being. He will transform you. 
So Sabbath time and Sabbath cost point to Sabbath person. And that person is Jesus. So what does this mean? Did I just do a whole long sermon about how actually you don't need to keep the Sabbath at all. You just need to trust in Jesus. Actually, no. Because the Sabbath was always pointing towards something, always pointing towards Jesus, always saying it's coming to real rest, it's coming, and it's Jesus. And now that we have Jesus, now that Jesus has died and resurrected and we can know him, the Sabbath is not pointing towards him, but pointing back towards him. We don't need a Sabbath to point forwards to Jesus. We need a Sabbath to point back to Jesus. We need the Sabbath to train our hearts to know the peace of Christ. Because even when we know something intellectually, we often live as it weren't true. How many of us know intellectually, diet and exercise are good for me, but knowing that in your head does, does, not, does not form you, does not train you, does not order your life. Actually, we need, to, um, we need to set up routines. We need to set up our life and our refrigerator even to point us towards the truth that diet and exercise are good for us. We actually have to order our lives to point us towards the truth. Because just because we know it in our heads doesn't mean that it's actually affected our hearts. And so we don't need to just know intellectually that Christ's work on the cross was, was, was rest for us. We actually need to set up our lives in a way that teach our hearts every week to say, actually, my work does not justify me. My work is not enough for me, but what is enough for me is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is enough for me. His work is enough for me. And I forget that and I don't believe it. And I need to be pointed back and back and back and say, no, Jesus is rest. He's the rest. And I actually need a life that points me in that direction because my heart is fickle. Now, what this means for each of us is probably some uncomfortableness. This means families. We need to, some of us need to change routines and schedules. We need to stop certain things. We need to rearrange our lives. How, how can we hold a Sabbath as families? For people who work, like Mariah doesn't work the same days every week. What does it mean for people who work shift jobs to have a Sabbath day? How do you structure that into your life? To be reminding you of the rest that is in Jesus Christ. How do you do that? Or people who are moms and dads, full-time moms and dads. Well, that's every mom and dad. But people who are stay at home and stay with kids. How, how, if that's your primary vocation is parenting, what, what does stopping your work for a day look like? Obviously, it can't just be, hey, I'm not going to talk to you today, kids. But what does it look like to rest from your work of parenting for a day? I don't have those answers. And to be honest with you, I am not good at this. I'm quite bad at this, actually. This week, my Sabbath is supposed to be on Mondays. Andrew and Brian and I, that's supposed to be the day that we don't work. And if you try to call us and email us or text us, in theory, unless it's an emergency, we shouldn't reply to you. Because we're trying to do this. But some of you, if you've known me for a while, I've responded to you. And I've done things on Monday. I did things this Monday. So I'm not good at this. I'm not saying this out of the authority of my, my own life. Because my own life is a pretty poor authority on this topic. Um, but on the authority of Scripture, I need this. I need my life to be structured this way. Because I need to know the rest of Jesus. And so we need, we need to, as a church, be thinking creatively. How do we practice Sabbath to know at the deepest level, that Jesus Christ is my rest. And we need to be supporting each other in it as well. We need to shape our lives to know the rest of Jesus Christ because only when we're resting, only when you're resting in Jesus' work, can you be transformed. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the way that you designed the world. 
And we thank you that you designed it and that we didn't. Because God, we would never have designed a world where we wasted time because it was holy. God, our hearts, we're, we're constantly working to justify ourselves and hold ourselves up and say, see, I've done well, I've done good. Aren't I a good and faithful servant, God? And what you want to say to us is, yeah, you've been a good and faithful servant, but not because you've done anything, but because you rested in my son, Jesus Christ. So God, would you teach our hearts to do that? Would you inspire us creatively? Would you bring people into our lives who are thoughtful about these topics or who have experienced these things? Would you, uh, would you show us, Lord, how we can structure our lives in this way, how we can order our lives in this way, to know the rest of your son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for us. So, Lord, we pray all of this in your holy and precious name. Amen.